Thank you, worship team. You know, these guys, um, they work hard in preparation to come and set a table before us every week. And uh, these are just some of the many wonderful souls who strive and who work on our behalf. And uh, thank you guys so much for what you've done. Hey, that last song, Rain on Us. Before we pray this morning and, and, uh, and jump into a message, I just want to ask you, what is it you want God to rain on you this morning? What do you want to walk out of here with? What would be your prayer this morning? What's the thing that you need? I want to invite you to go into prayer and just say, what it is you really want from God this morning. Because God in his love has said, I will not hold anything back. All we have to do is ask. Let's go to him. Lord, we do ask that you would just rain on us. You know our hearts. You know what we seek. And we do seek you. We don't understand what all that may mean this morning, what the future looks like ahead for us, what the adventures and the experiences are that lie await, uh, that await for us. But we do know this one thing. We know that you are ever-present, that you dwell within us, that you are working and willing to do in us what is your good pleasure? Make this morning memorable for us. We invite you to make this moment memorable for us. Thank you for the lives of the many people who we hold in memory, who have touched our lives. We thank you for them. We thank you most especially for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Thank you and we memorialize these moments for the great gift of love and grace that you have so freely given to us. Walk us through a journey right now, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. We have been working and we are ending today a series on Egypt out of us. And so we have gone to, make sure I can get this right, yeah, we've gone through uh, a lot of the book of Exodus, as well as several books to either side of it, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, and uh, we've looked at um, that getting Egypt out of the Israelites was much more difficult than getting them out of Egypt. Now, now, Pharaoh of that time may have disagreed with that. He may have sensed the pain that, that made that a really difficult journey for him. But for the Israelites, it was easier getting them out of Egypt than it is getting the Egypt out of them. And here's the deal. And uh, Mark and Beth and Ryan have all spoken to this. That 400 years seats patterns within us that are difficult to break. And even still, it is true for us today. We grew up learning certain things, experiencing certain things, and those developed thoughts and patterns of belief about how the world worked, how we work, how, who is God, how does God work. And it's difficult to lay those patterns down, isn't it? It's difficult to find, to walk into the newness that may lay ahead of us. So Ryan spoke about in the very first message about order and about how God had an order that did not include the oppressors of Egypt above them. Beth came and spoke about God's provisioning power within the lives of the Israelites out in the wilderness. Uh, Ryan came back and spoke about worship and how God had a new form of worship where God himself would come to be with his people rather than the gods of Egypt that stood above and wanted to crush them underneath. And last week, Mark had, for me, the most amazing sermon on freedom. And the freedom that we have in Christ and the freedom that was, that was given freely to the Israelites. So today we're going to kind of jump off all of those and we're going to talk about a really 
uh, exciting topic on a Memorial Day three-day weekend of work. I'm not sure where this is going to go this morning, but hopefully it won't be like work for you, okay? Lots of work is going on. We are involved in work. Work is a huge, meaningful place in our life. You spend more time at work than you do anything else, likely. Work has a way, uh, our work has a way of shaping a lot of our sense of identity, who we are. We get the feedback at work that, that we so desperately need. There's opportunities there. Work means a lot to us. And we tell ourselves we mean a lot to work. And so we're going to be speaking about this morning. Um, however, let's do something fun. Guess what? You won the lottery. $400 million. Yeah, it's yours, man. Okay, Uncle Sam took... 50% of that. So you now have $200 million. But it's one lump sum to you. What do you do with that? $200 million. Well, first of all, because you want to be a good steward, and because we love this community, you're going to tithe 10% of that, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Or you're going to give it away to nonprofits, to uh, help agencies, to uh, charities. You're going to, you're going to tithe 10%. But Horizon, as a result, we're going to pay off the building. We're going to double Ryan and Mark's salary. We're going to, oh, yeah, we're going to have some fun. Yeah. We're going to do some exciting things. And then what do you do? Okay. You go buy that car that you've been wanting. Yeah. And maybe you buy that house that you wanted. Or maybe you buy a house for your parents that they've been wanting. Maybe you take that trip. You take that trip you've always been wanting to take. Ah, $200 million. So now you're sitting at $190 million. What do you do with the rest of your life? How would you use that resource? Think for just a moment. If you had that, you don't have to do anything. But looking at you, I see in your eyes the reality that you would probably do something in this world. You wouldn't go out just spending money. What would you do if you had $190 million? What would you do in this world? I've asked this question for 30 years of people. I want to take a quick test. How many of you, it occurs to you, you would do something and use that resource in a humanitarian effort of some sort? Raise your hand. How many said to yourself, I would go launch this ministry that I've, God has been laying on my heart for some time. Raise your hand. Ministry, okay. How many of you would say, I'm going to spend some of that money and try to change something in the world today. I'm going to make life better somewhere. How many of you entrepreneurs out there say to, said to yourself, I'd go start a business, but one with a meaningful product that I believe in. Raise your hand. Yeah. How many of you said... I would keep working my same job that I have right now. I would keep working it in the same way that I always have. Okay, some of you. There's always some of us that do that. And there's a lot of us that say, no way. I would, I would do something. I would explode what I have into something that God really wants to bless. Yeah. Our jobs... There's a dynamic tension about work, oftentimes for many of us. Work is what sustains us, but also work sometimes feels like it constrains us, right? What does God say about work? Actually, guys, not a whole lot. There's not a whole big theology around work like there is around grace or salvation or love or uh, those kinds of topics. There's not a whole lot. There is some. And I've kind of grouped all of the verses that do exist into five categories. I want to share those with you. Uh, whoa. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, here they are. I'm sorry. I forgot where I was. Okay. First of all, number one bucket. There's a lot of verses, or there's some verses anyway, that talk about that work and rest reflect the very nature of God. 
uh, in Genesis. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then in Exodus, the Israelites are reminded of this. God says to Moses, or God says to them through Moses, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. So the first thing about work, there's verses that talk about that work and rest reflect the nature of God. We're going to come back to this verse in a little bit. Another uh, bucket is don't be a sluggard. There's a bunch of verses that say basically don't be a slacker. Come on, work. The slugger does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. And Proverbs goes on to talk uh, many times about that. But Paul in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, says, The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. <laughs> they are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food you eat. So there's verses that kind of speak to that. Also, there's a bucket of take joy in working hard. There's a number of verses, a number of scripture that talk about in your work, take joy, render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and to women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we're slaves or free. Find enjoyment in your toil. Two more. Hard work produces results. There's a certain number of verses, uh, there's scripture in the Bible that talks about, and Proverbs here, the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. If you work hard, Proverbs says, you shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. You will be profitable. Your plans will succeed and you will stand before kings. Now that message could easily preach, huh? Last one is, there are verses, there is scripture that says, work to the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So most of us have heard messages in churches or wherever that, that use some of these verses to talk about work. And, and there is a good base for uh, understanding how best we can approach work. My question is, and what I'm wondering about when I started preparation in this sermon was, what was the concept around the, uh, that the Israelites may have had around work? Well, uh, there's not a lot that we know. Uh, there's not a lot in Exodus that talks about the Israelites and work. There's some, but we don't know if they were sluggards. We don't know if they took joy in their work. Here's what we do know. Scripture indicates that they made mud bricks. They tended to herds, worked in the fields. They built cities and harvested grain. They did a lot of things. That's in Scripture. Now, likely, I mean, there was more Israelites than there is in the city of Baltimore. So there's a lot of people here, hundreds of thousands. And some would say over 2 million Israelites likely to sustain themselves for 400 years. They also knew how to cook, make clothes, clean houses, create furnishings. They knew how to press olives and make wine. They knew all of the kinds of things and they had the skills to succeed, uh, to, uh, to, to live uh, all these years. There it goes. We also know that they had cruel taskmasters and Mark and Ryan and Beth all covered this. They had cruel taskmasters and we also know that they were miserable and they cried out to God. Now question, why were they miserable? Especially those who, I mean, nobody's 400 years old. So nobody, nobody there in, the, uh, in, the, in Egypt, did they have any concept of anything other than slavery? of hard, you know, cruel taskmasters? Well, they probably did at some level. Um, at some DNA level, at genetic level, they remembered that God had promised a holy land to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants hundreds of years before. I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That's God speaking to Abraham. He goes on in here to talk about that it won't be you, however, Abraham, that will go into the promised land. It will be the fourth generation after you. Your descendants will wander in Egypt for 400 years, but I will bring them out. On that day, 
the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your descendants, I will give you this land. And also I would share with you that in Exodus, Moses tells the people when, before they come out of Egypt, he says to them, the Lord has said, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Listen to this. And with great acts of judgment and I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. The Israelites, even after 400 years, they saw a vision, a possibility that one day they would walk into that land. Sometimes knowing what the future could be, what it could look like, will make you miserable with what you have today. Sometimes the knowledge that there's something waiting for you seems to make it intolerable, the, the situation I'm in right now. So here's what the promise meant for the Israelites. They would own their own land. They'd come out of Egypt, they'd have their own land, they'd be their own boss They'd run their own business, make their own choices. They would no longer be slaves. They would be free people. And the responsibility would all be there. Mark spoke about this last week. So the promise included that everything we know today is going to change. Life is going to be different. We're going to own our own businesses. We make the decisions. That's the dream that I carry within me. And maybe some of you have. When that day comes... You know, especially those of you who are just starting out in the job market. Listen, if your job includes, you know, burgers and uh, cash registers in a retail setting, I know you probably dream of the day where repetitious work is, that's going to evolve into something, into a real job. Most of us that are sitting here that are, you know, out of college, you know, beyond that, we had those jobs in the beginning, didn't we? Yeah, uh, my first job, Sonic Drive-In, seventy-five cents an hour. That <laughs> was a great job, man. I was I was a steel griddle technician, and in charge of palm-free construction. I flipped burgers and I made French fries, <laughs> and I also got fired after three weeks. See, my supervisor was my older sister, Kathy. That's a job I'd like to forget. But I did move on in life. That was my dream. One day I'm going to do something really good. I'm going to have a real job. Ah, those real jobs are tough though, aren't they? They're tough. Responsibility increases. Freedom decreases. Real jobs are, are difficult. They're hard. We can get lost in those real jobs. We can get out of balance in our life in those real jobs. But at any rate, that was what was waiting for him. And the most marvelous journey begins. I want to tell you, the, inc the most incredible road trip begins right now. They leave Egypt and look at what happens from there. God starts doing some crazy stuff. Lightning, pillar of the cloud, Moses' face glows, water from rocks, trumpet blasts, the Red Sea parts, pillars of fire, Mount Sinai presence, the ground opens up, quail descends, manna falls down. It's crazy. Why did God do all these miracles? And by the way, guys, he did all of these miracles in the first two years leaving Egypt. He did more miracles, and there was more dramatic miracles in the first two years than in all of the 40 years that followed that. Why did God do these kind of miracles? What was going on? Well, I used to always think it was because God was trying to reveal himself to them, that he was not like the Egyptian gods. He was different. And I think that there's truth in that. I think that is part of it. I also used to think it was because he tried, he was showing them himself so that they could trust him and take the steps necessary to move into the promised land. And I'm sure that is some of it. He was building trust in them. I think there's something else, though. 
What is it that God is wanting that he would bring them out of Egypt? Guys, I'm going to tell you this. God wanted one thing. He wanted to be with his people. And he knew that they would not be able to be with him as long as they were in Egypt and as long as Egypt was inside of them. They could never do it. And you know, when I see all these miracles, you know what I see? I see God actually being with them. Now, it's, it's somewhat removed. They couldn't go up the mountain. Moses had to go up to the mountain. They couldn't talk directly to God. Moses did. Uh, you know, he took Joshua one time with him, Aaron with him one time. This is actually a picture of what it looks like to get this close to God. When you get close to God, crazy stuff starts happening. Things you never would have guessed start occurring. Things that you can't explain to other people, they start occurring. Because to be close to God is to be close to pure power. The creator of the universe doesn't sit down and chat with a cup of coffee in his hand. Get close to God and life starts turning weird. I think it's simply the presence of God, which is what God always wanted, was to be with his people. Well, so we're going to take a real quick run through of what happened in the wilderness. We're in year one. Okay, 40 days to travel from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Red Sea, those kind of things happen in the process. There was about 300 days at Mount Sinai. 95 of those days, Moses going up and down the mountain, talking to God, getting the commandments. There's a lot of activity going on up and down. And about 200 days of that time, the Israelites are gathering all of the supplies that they need to begin building, constructing the tabernacle uh, at the command of God. God gives Moses instructions. They start gathering and things start building. They had plenty of time, fortunately, left over to complain, grumble, make a golden calf, fight a battle or two, eat some quail. There's points where God has to discipline them. There's a lot of groaning and infighting. Moses receives the tablets. Moses breaks the tablets. Moses gets two more new tablets. And then they spend a lot of time eating uh, manna. It was a full time, okay? First two years, first year, uh, it was full. They leave Sinai and they head for Kadesh Barnea. They are now on their way from Sinai to the promised land. The road trip continues. It was supposed to take, in fact, Deuteronomy 2 says it's 11 days from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. This is another area in the desert, but closer to the promised land. 11 days. It took them nearly one year to make it. What in the world was going on? Well... A lot of things. I mean, it's a road trip with two million people. You know, stuff happens, okay? So, um, are we there yet? Well, Exodus chapters 20 to 40, God gives additional instructions and additional laws to the people. And then the book of Leviticus, they're still moving towards um, Kadesh Barnea. Leviticus. Uh, Moses and the people received more instructions on how to build the tabernacle, rules for living, you know, how to live with each other, eat, drink, worship, uh, what is worship to look like, rituals they need to observe, you know, how to make offerings, behavior of the priests, consecrating themselves. All of these things are actually being kind of downloaded into the Israelites as they move from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And then finally we get to the exciting part. We're now almost there. Numbers chapters 1 through 12. Well, here's several things. They're now in Kadesh Barnea. And God says, I want you to take a census of all the people in all the tribes. So a census is taken. The tribes, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, are then arranged around the tent of gathering, the, where the tabernacle is. They're all arranged around there. Commitment vows are made to the Lord. And one of those commitments is no more strong drink. They're getting ready to drive right into the promised land, okay? The sons of Levi, the priests, are now purified at that point. Two silver trumpets are made for Levites to call to the assembly when it's time for them to gather and to enter the promised land. And the tribes are listed in numbers. The number that they're supposed to go into the promised land. 
huh? They're ready to go, right? Let's sit down here. Unfortunately, unfortunately, everything just starts falling apart. Everything falls apart. Tim, you've taken road trips. And isn't it right before you go that everything just goes crazy? Boy, it does this time too. It does this time too. Well, first of all, they get hungry. And so they start complaining. We haven't had any fresh meat in so long. And God says, okay, I'll send some quail to you. And, and then Miram and uh, Aaron decide to rebel against Moses. And so God gives leprosy to Miram and he puts her outside the camp for seven days. She goes into timeout. And then, and then he brings her back in. There's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of stuff that's going on right now. Everybody is in kind of chaos mode. It reminds me, see, see, right in that moment, Moses gets really angry. And God gets angry. It reminds me of taking a road trip with my family, 10 kids in the back of a station wagon, and we're back there because there's no air conditioning and it's hot, and we're back there punching each other and, you know, fighting and yelling, and my dad is trying to drive, and he starts reaching behind him. He's trying to kill his whole family in the backseat of the car, and, 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 and he says, oh, you're hungry? Yeah, I'm going to give you so many french fries, they'll come out of your nose. <laughs> and I go, hey, daddy, I can already do that. You want to see it? <laughs> crazy, crazy stuff. So they get it together, and Moses says, okay, I'm going to send in 12 uh, spies. So the 12 uh, spies go in. I'm not going to read all of this because I think you know the story. We've been quoting these verses for the last four or five weeks. Moses sends them out to the land of Caleb, uh, into the land of uh, the promised land, Canaan. And he says to him, hey, listen, check it out, guys, while you're there. You know, how many people are they? How strong are they? You know, what about the cities? Are they fortified? Is it going to be easy on that? You know, and check out the land too. You know, what are the hills like? Go up into the hills, see what that's like, you know, and uh, listen, guys. Guys, uh, uh, be of good courage. And uh, if you see a Burger King on the way back, pick us up something and bring it back. Well, he didn't say that necessarily, but he said, bring some of the fruit of the land. And uh, we want the people to be able to see what's going on. So the spies go out. <laughs> I'm ready, guys. The thing we've dreamed of all of these years is coming back. Well, the spies come back. And they say, yeah, <laughs> the land is really good. You know, oh, it's everything. Milk and honey right there. But also, there's a lot of people there. And they're big. They're large. Their cities are large. And they're very heavily fortified. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. I don't know if it was like professional wrestlers or what, but they're big, they're strong. And they say the Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Yeah, I like right here this moment. Caleb, one of the 12 spies, he takes a different view. He quiets the people before Moses and he says, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. I love Caleb. It reminds me of Gimli, the, the dwarf in uh, Lord of the Rings, when in the last series before the big, the final battle, he says, certain death, small chance of success. What are we waiting for? You got to love those people that when they see a battle ahead, they just walk right into it. They're ready. There's something different about those people. Well, the spies say, no, no, Caleb, you are, we are not able to go up to that. It's bad. These people, the land, it is going to devour us. We saw all the people there, and the sons of Anak, they are giants. We seem like grasshoppers to them. And they looked down at us, and they thought of us as grasshoppers before them. Don't go. Well, things just kind of fall apart from there, guys. Uh, Moses and Aaron and uh, Caleb and Joshua, they fall on their face before the people and they say, people, don't do this. Don't listen 
to that report. The land is every bit as good as what you've been told. And we can go into that land. And we will defeat them not because of us, but because God is on our side and he has already given it to us. Don't back away from the work that is before you. But uh, they say that, and the scripture says that the people said, let's get stones and stone them. And in the midst of all of that, as they reach down and start to pick up the stones to stone Moses and his friends, God arrives on the scene. In fact, the scripture says, God appeared before all of the people of Israel. And he said, enough. The trip's off. We're not going. In fact, you're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. You are not going to go. And I am not going with you. Everybody who's 20 years of age and older, you'll die in the desert before you'll see the promised land. I'll wait for a new generation of people. Except for my servant Caleb. He'll go into the promised land because he has a different spirit. What happened? How could things fall apart this bad? Why didn't they go? They've been thinking about this for hundreds of years. In their DNA was this belief that one day the promised land and everything would be good. I'd own my own business. I'd get to call the shots. Everything is ready. What happened? Well, there's a lot of explanations as to what happened, a lot of beliefs. You know, some people believe that they just didn't trust God enough. Even regardless of all of the miracles that God did, they still didn't trust him. They didn't believe in that. I'm sure that's, talking to a couple million people, I'm sure that's part of it. Some people believe that, um, that it really was. They were afraid of the sons of Anak. Maybe. I don't think so, though. Because you know what happened? When God said, you're not going, a whole bunch of them said, well, wait a minute. If we're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, let's go ahead and go into the promised land. And so they tried to go. Moses said, don't go, guys, because God is not with you. They, they went anyway, and they got utterly defeated. I don't think it was because they were afraid. Where was that valor back when the first time when they were given the opportunity? I don't think it was that. Here's what I think it was. I think it was the fear of change, of transformation, of becoming the very people that God had called them out to be. I think they were afraid. Afraid to be, to go into the unknown. And in spite of everything, slavery presented safety. And guys, it's still true today, isn't it? Sometimes slavery, whatever that is, that could be addictions, that could be um, uh, feeling trapped in a job, that could be in a relationship. Being enslaved sometimes is better than facing the unknown. I like this quote by uh, Stephen Pressfield. Most of us have two lives, the one we live and the unlived life inside of us. I asked you earlier at the very beginning, what would you do if you had that $190 million? Most of us have two lives, the one you're living and the unlived life that is inside of you. And then he says this, and between the two stands resistance. There is an evil in this world. And in our Christian community, we tend to talk about the evil of sin of disobeying God, of all of the things that we can get into. But I want to suggest to you that there is a, an insidious level of evil that is simply in the form of resistance. Resistance doesn't say, that voice inside of you doesn't say, go do the wrong thing. You know what it says? Don't do anything. Just stay where you are. Don't transform. The goal of resistance is stop you from becoming the person God created you be. Resistance occurs most often when attempting to move from a lower state to a higher state. Resistance won't say to you, uh, oh yeah, don't do that bad thing. Resistance says, 
wait till tomorrow to start that diet. Uh, you can bring down that, that, um, uh, that trail master from the attic. You can bring that down next week when you have some time. Fix that problem in your marriage. You need to do that. But let's find a way next month that we can find a therapist that can help us. I know you need to go to prayer. You do. You need to go and get prayer. Get somebody to pray for you. That's a good thing. Wait till next Sunday to do that. When you feel more confident. The voice of resistance buries us in inactivity. And finally, resistance rears up at the doorway to transformation. God is calling us into a transformative state with him. Resistance says, slow down. You don't know for sure where it's going. Are you prepared to take on the risks for that? I want to share with you a couple of things. Resistance, it's the addiction that keeps, we keep sliding back into. It's the distraction that keeps stealing your time day after day. It's the need to find an easier way. There has to be an easier way. The thought, I'm better than this. I don't deserve this. I deserve more. Resistance is the whisper that says, not now, later. It's the excuse that justifies our failures. It's the belief that tomorrow is the time to start. It's the fear that says, not me. Uh, maybe them, but not me. That's the voice of resistance inside of you. Real quick, Adolf Hitler wanted to be an artist. Did you know that? When he was young, he took his inheritance, about 700 kronen, and he went to Vienna, and there he applied and enrolled in uh, the School of, uh, of Art in Vienna and uh, applied for the uh, admittance into the School of Architecture. He wanted to be an artist. How many of you have ever seen a painting by Hitler? I would suggest to you that it was easier for Hitler to start World War II and murder millions of people than it was for him to sit and face a blank square of canvas. Resistance is the voice that says, yeah, one day you're going to write that book. Get started on that next week. It says to you, yes, one day you're going to build that business. But today, just focus on what needs to be done. Resistance is a voice. It buries us in inactivity. I want to go back to Genesis real quick, and, and it's time to close, but I need to, you need this, okay? Work and rest. We talked about this verse, seventh day God finishes work he'd been doing on the seventh day. He rested from all his work. But the next couple of verses in that chapter, God took the man, set him down in the Garden of Eden to work the ground and care for it. He brought them to the man. He brought all the animals to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. The man named the cattle, named the birds of the air, named the wild animals. Wait a minute. There's a lesson here. God works. And then he said, you are created in my image and you work. I want to suggest something startling to you when you work and when you work hard you actually are participating in the environment of God you enter a transformative state in which the presence of God is right here you are stepping into the presence of God why how do I say that because the concept of work started with God. Listen, he could have created us. He could have created the world and said, all you have to do is think and it will be done. You, know, you don't have to work. But no, he said, you need to be productive. I am productive. You should be productive. And being productive is one of the ways that we connect with each other. It's a little different. But what happened? Well, so work is about creating and caring and attending to. It's a place for intimacy with God. So what happened on that? Well, because of sin, God says to Adam and Eve, the very ground is cursed because of you. Getting food from the ground would be as painful as having babies for your wife. You'll be working in pain all your life long. The ground will sprout thorns and weeds. You'll get your food the hard way, planting and tilling and harvesting, sweating in the fields from dawn to dusk. But listen, 
the punishment wasn't work because work didn't change. Work is still the entrance into the presence of God. But what changed was our perception of work. With the knowledge of good and evil, we suddenly became aware of the pain that goes with work. That bad manager that won't let you do what you need to do. Those reports that they keep dumping on you. That repetition of flipping burgers over and over. You know, That feels wrong. How could God want me to do something in life that feels so bad? Yeah. A couple of verses as we start to close. First of all, the high calling. Philippians 3. Brethren, I count not myself to obtain, but this one thing I do. I forget the things that lay behind me, which are, uh, and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. See, Paul learned something. Yes, there is pain associated with work. Life is hard. Your jobs are not always providing you meaning and fulfillment. But when we enter into it, we should press into it. And I want to talk about that as a kind of close. The Israelites' journey continues. The book of Joshua, a new generation now exists. And they get ready to go in the promised land. Here's the difference. Why are they going to go in the promised land? Did the Anak giants get shorter? No. Did the fortified cities fall down during the 40 years? No. Nothing changed. What changed? It was a new generation of people that didn't know that there was safety in slavery. They thought, they looked at everything and saw nothing but possibility. Nothing but blue sky ahead for them. And they were just focused enough in that they believed in their heart that any bumps and hurdles along the way, God would take care of them in it. And so they're going to press forward, and they do. They, they move into the renewed opportunity. But I just got to tell you, Caleb, right before they go in, Caleb comes before the group, and they're dividing up the land. And Caleb comes in, and he says, Hey, Moses, whoa, slow down, everybody. Forty years ago, I was one of the spies that came back and said, No, we should go up and take it. And it was promised to me a certain portion of land a portion of land where the giants lived. And today is my birthday. I'm 85 years old. <laughs> I'm as strong today as I was back then. I'm good for going into war and for coming back out again. That's, a, that's better. So Moses, give me the hill country. Give me the hills. Give me the giants. Because I'll go in and take it. And guess what? All of those young people around Caleb said, we'll go with you, Caleb. Why? Because they grew up on the stories of Caleb. Yeah, kids, I know it's hot out here in the desert. Let me tell you about the mountains. Let me tell you about the cool water that's coming down. Oh, there's some streams up there. And the hunting guys, oh, you guys that love to hunt, man, you're going to have your fill of it up in the mountains. One of these days, I'm going to take you to the mountains. And we're going to fight some battles. Strength and honor. We are going to fight some battles, and we're going to win. And we're going to take the hill country. They grew up on those stories, and they went with them. Caleb took the land. He went up into the mountains. He took them. He worked the plan, and God gave it to him. Well, some lessons in the trenches. Regardless of what kind of job you have today, I want to give you some lessons that come out of the trenches, the trenches of Scripture and the trenches in life that those of you who are old enough to have learned this, you would amen me on this. The first one is advance. If there's something in front of you, if you're bored with your work, advance. Take one more step. In fact, go to the point of no return. Go to that place where you say, I cannot go anymore. I can't take this manager anymore. And then take one more step. Take one more step beyond what you think you can do. Because it's that step where God reveals himself. Lesson two, fight. Fight. 
Go on, listen for the cries of the wounded. Wherever those are coming from, move right to that place. That's where the fight is. Go in and fight on behalf of others. Fight for what's right. Don't shirk it. Don't avoid it. And guys, I'm not talking about being a jerk. I'm talking about fighting the good fight. Don't avoid it. Risk. Lean into the unlikely, the impossible. Rhonda said to me the other day, my goal is, is that the things that I am doing five years from now, I can look back on and say five years ago, I thought those was impossible. Those are the things I want to be doing five years from now. Lean into it. Move towards the unlikely. Volunteer. Take the job. Take the task that nobody else wants to do. That's where the learning is. That's where the growth is. Guys, that's where God is. When I step into that job that nobody else wants, guess what? That may be the very task that changes your organization, that makes a difference in your fellow staff members. That may be the very place where something happens differently in your family. That may be the moment, the place where the Holy Spirit says, I make all things new for you. A dream. Entertain new thoughts. Open up to the unusual. Remember, where God is, things kind of get crazy sometimes. Be open to it. Don't force things to try to be the way you want. And finally, create. Trust that your soul knows what your brain does not. You do not have to have it all figured out. You don't. If you're in a job, if you're in a place in life that as you work, you're trying to understand so you can make the right decision, yes, that's all important. We have been given the mind of Christ. We should apply and use that mind. But guys, hear me. The purpose of work as seen in the very nature of God and that he's given to us as his children includes creating when you begin to create, and listen guys, it doesn't matter in many cases what you create. Did you know that almost every Nobel Prize winner since 1901, every science and mathematic Nobel Prize winner, nearly every one of them also compared to their peers who were competing for the Nobel Prize, they more than them were painters. They were musicians. They were artists, they were actors, they were writers. They discovered that by opening my creative senses and entering into a space where I begin to create, it opened my mind to possibilities I never would have imagined in my science. You see, science is nothing other than the study of God's creativity. Nothing other than the study of God's creativity. And when you begin to create... You say, I can't draw. I can't write. I, I know. I can't either. You know, I, drawing is like, I want to close with this quick story. I was sitting on the plane coming back from Boston last week, and I'm sitting next to a young girl in college, and uh, she's working on something. I'm working on my sermon, actually, and I'm at this point, I'm talking about the role of art, and I'm about halfway there. We're kind of coming in on Baltimore, and I turn, look over at her. I hadn't looked at her the whole time. And she had this piece of paper. And she had this amazing piece of art that she was doing. And, and I said, uh, you're an artist, right? And she said, yeah, sort of. I mean, you know, I like to draw. And I said, when did you begin to draw? Oh, I just started. I don't know. I just found that I could do that. And so, you know, a long time ago, when I was a little kid, I just started doodling. And, and I said, have you had classes? No, no, no. And listen, guys, what she had done was amazing. It was beautiful. She has a little website, you know. And I, I looked at that, and I said, well, I was just preparing a presentation. And did you know what you were going to draw? She said, oh, no. I, I just was sitting here, and I just picked it up and started drawing. You didn't know where it was going? No, I never do. I mean, sometimes I have an idea, but I did. Not this time. And so I thought about you guys, and I said, 
could I buy that from you? She said, no. It's just a drawing. And I said, no, really. I have a bunch of people. I want to show it to them. Can I give it to them? She said, no. The plane's about to land, and I said, I'll give you $100 for it. She's a college student. I knew she was broke. (laughs) She said, no. And I said, how much would it take? How much would it take for you to sell that to me? And she got a little frustrated with me, and she said, I don't want to sell it. And I got it. And I said, why? As the wheels hit ground. Why? She said, because I started it, I didn't know where it was going to go. And quite frankly, I'd like to see where it ends up. So no, I'm not going to sell it to you. I want to stick around and see where it goes. Oh, guys, there's something amazing about that, isn't there? Where we jump into life and we say, I'll fight. I'll take the risk. I don't know where it's going, but I hear a voice of God. It's a dream. It's, it's a little fantasy out here. But in that is a voice of God. And I will walk forward into that. And finally, the last verse, and now I promise it's the end. Philippians, when I was living among you, you live responsive, in responsive obedience. Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, read Redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy in God's energy, it is an energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. What is God's most pleasure? It's you. You are God's pleasure. He is working, and his will is to be with you. How do you be with God? In this sermon, work. Jump into it with both feet. Embrace the opportunity that God has. And God himself will transform you in that process. You will not only be the artist, you will become the work of art. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you. To see just a window into into what you are working within each of us. As we stand this morning in a moment, we claim your presence, your Holy Spirit in our life. Do within us what you will, and we will be faithful to take the next step, to fight the next battle, to volunteer for the job nobody else wants, because in the process we become. You are creating that within us, and we experience your presence. In our song right now, we claim your presence. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.